0: Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I hope you are having an awesome day. I am recording this intro at 11.38 p.m. on a Sunday night. Uh, today was an awesome day at church. We've had a really cool run these past few weeks of just having a great crowd, having new people there. So if you're listening to this and you attended any time in the past few weeks... Thank you so much for coming. It means so much. You rock. If you're listening to this and you've never been, you also rock. I can't believe we have people like listening to us, like not in our state. That's crazy. Um, So again, thank you. It means the world. A couple quick things I just want to go over. The biggest thing is I forgot to announce this sooner. uh, So please forgive me. I always try and make a big deal out of it whenever our own people uh, come up on stage to do anything. And a week from today, uh, from the day I'm recording this, so this upcoming Sunday, uh, one of our very own Sherry is going to be speaking and singing. So we're going to have um, a crazy big band this, this next week. There's going to be uh, six musicians. And we're going to be doing our normal five songs with Kiana leading. And then Sherry is going to come up for the message portion and she's going to speak for about 15 minutes. And then she's going to do two songs that kind of help tell the story of what she's talking about. I imagine, you know, maybe she'll start with one talk for a little bit and end with the other. Uh, But I'm just really pumped. Sherry is awesome. And I think that she is going to just uh, deliver something really special uh, via speaking and singing. Um I really like stuff like this. I'm a very um musical loving type person. So anytime you can incorporate songs into what you're already talking about, uh it just kind of makes it hit home that much more for me. So that is really cool. It's coming up this Sunday. Make sure you check it out. Um, also, we are in the middle of small groups right now. If you're hearing this and you want to jump in, feel free. Um, We've got a Tampa group, two St. Pete groups, and one Zoom group. And uh, even though we've been meeting for a few weeks, don't feel bad about joining up late. It's totally cool. Uh, That being said, I think that's probably all the announcements. So this is the last week of Jonah. Uh, Hannah, in fact, called it um, between God and Jonah. It's the final showdown.
1: It's the final countdown. That's caffeine talking. Okay. <sighs> the final chapter of Jonah, if it's in with what we call wisdom literature in the Bible, which like think like Job or Ecclesiastes, those books, these books kind of ask the reader to like square off with God and ask really hard questions. And they do not give us simple answers. In fact, they end with more questions, which is why I love them and many people hate them. <laughs> uh, these books are not instruction manuals. We're going to told as a child that, Uh, The Bible is like basic instructions for you before leaving earth. Uh, The Bible is not an instruction manual. It's more of like a spiritual and emotional workout that we're not prepared for. Usually we just get into it and we're like, oh no, I feel attacked. Uh, So figuring out what God is up to in the world is not simple. (laughs) It is certainly not as simple as we have been led to believe. And these books are really honest about that. So chapter three, we talked about last week, Jonah's in Nineveh. The Ninevites repent in dramatic fashion and God's like, fine, we'll not torture city. (laughs) We might expect that Jonah would be happy about this because as a prophet, you generally are like, y'all need to shape up or God's going to like destroy you. And people are like, nah. And they just ignore them completely. Jonah said, y'all need to shape up. And they were like, okay. And they did it in spectacular fashion. They listened to him and he's upset. He's like, why would you listen to me? This is a terrible idea. I don't know why I came here with a message from God. It actually says in chapter four, verse one, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. And I need you, I need you to read this. We're used to reading the Bible like, la, la, la. No, you need to read this with an attitude, okay? Imagine Jonah, he's super pissed. He's like, isn't this what I said, God? (laughs) When I was at home, this is why I tried to avoid this whole thing by running away from you. I knew you were a compassionate and gracious God. <laughs> I knew that you're slow to anger and abounding in love and a God who relents from sending calamity. Now just kill me. Just kill me. <laughs> I think we can finally get some insight because at the beginning, God's like, hey, go save these people. And Jonah's like, no, thank you. And the reason is because he knew God was full of compassion. Does that strike you as odd? He's like, God, I know you're not actually going to destroy anyone, so I don't want to go tell them anything. And I think this is the tension. This is the tension of the whole book, the tension between justice and mercy. And how do we get these two to relate? Once Jonah finally admits the reason why he didn't want to go in the first place and why he's now super-duper mad that God did not burn the whole city down, he's like, God, how dare you? And God's like, is it right for you to be mad? And then Jonah doesn't answer the question. There's no question, there's no answer at all. Perhaps it is right. Have you ever been on Jonah's side in this story? Not just God's side? Like, think about this. The Assyrians are responsible for the death of thousands of innocent people. How dare God send Israel to exile under these horrible people, only to then let them off the hook? On the other hand, maybe it's not right for Jonah to be angry, because after all, God is the creator of all things and can do whatever God wants. And besides, didn't God just show mercy to Jonah who disobeyed a direct command and also endangered the lives of everyone on the boat he tried to run away from? Another note, ironically, is when people were reading this book, it was several hundred years after the Assyrians were in fact taken over by the Babylonian Empire and the city was burned to the ground. So everyone reading this would have known Now, we don't get a definitive answer or anything close to a definitive answer on whether it's right for Jonah to be angry. Instead, we just get a different story. Jonah goes outside the city and plops on the ground, as Jonah is very good at throwing an adult-sized timber tantrum. He plops down. He builds himself a little shack, because they're in the desert, so it's very hot, and he is bound and determined to wait to see what will happen to Nineveh, because it hasn't been the full 40 days yet, and he's like, maybe, God, maybe I'll get through to this, guy. (laughs) Maybe he will burn down the city and I'll be happy just watching like this. Have you seen that meme picture? It's like really old. It's like a little girl and she's like got crazy eyes and everything's on fire behind her. I just picture that when I think about Jonah watching like, hmm. So he plops down, he sits in the shade. While Jonah sits, God appoints a plant overnight to grow and cover his little shack so he gets even more shade. And Jonah is ecstatic about this plant. The text says, he joyed over the plant with great joy. My translation, he was pumped about the plant. He was like, yes, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me, this plant. Now, if you've read Jonah, you know where this is going. A sad place for Jonah. Maybe he's just happy about the shade. Or maybe he takes this plant as like some kind of sign that God will change God's mind and actually destroy everything after all. But either way, for the first time in the entire story, Jonah is a happy person. But don't worry, it does not last. (laughs) He immediately is like very angry again. Because God then appoints a worm to attack Jonah's precious baby plant. Now, a translation like the NIV, which you might be used to, says something along the lines of, God provided a worm which chewed the plant, so it withered. That does not do the least bit of justice to what happened to this plant, okay? I don't want to set you. I know some people are very attached to plants. The Hebrew word that is translated as chew here is not translated as chew anywhere else in the Old Testament. Uh, It is a violent word. It does not mean chew. It means attacked, beat down, slaughtered, smote, defeated. God appointed a bug to smite the plant. (laughs) It's used, if you look in the Old Testament where this word is used, it's like always around war. People are getting slaughtered and smote and defeated, right? So Jonah's precious plant is not chewed. It is like violently destroyed. And then, as if things can't get any worse for poor Jonah, God then appoints a scorching east wind, because they're in the desert, to attack, beat down, slaughter, smite, and defeat Jonah's head. (laughs) So he's just like, and just like that, we're like back to the Jonah we know and love. He wants to die. Um, he is like, it would be better for me to die than to live. You killed my plant. And God is like, okay, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this time Jonah answers. He didn't have an answer about the Ninevites, but he has an answer about the plant and plant mama life. So he is like, it is right. Even to death. That is like fancy talk for, yes, I'm so convinced about this. I'll die. What about a plant? I want to be like, "Mm, you need to to check yourself, sir, before you wreck yourself. And this sets us up for the very final words in the whole book, which is God's speech. This is what God said. You have been concerned about this plant. You didn't tend to it, and you didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. You had the plant for one day. Should I not have more concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Now, in English, you won't pick up on this. But in the original text, there's kind of like an argument structure so that Yahweh and Jonah each get 47 words in this chapter. Jonah starts with 39, he's complaining, Yahweh has three. Jonah has three, Yahweh gets five. Jonah has five, Yahweh gets 39. And all of Jonah's words are talking about justice. How could you let this happen? How could you not punish people when they deserve it? And all of God's words are about mercy. Shouldn't I care? Now, can we assume that just because God has the last word that God wins the argument? No, I don't think so. Because the chapter ends with a question. God's not like, I should care, you're wrong. God says, shouldn't I care? The end. Just think about that for thousands of years. Jonah has a point, and God has a point. The tension has not been resolved. Now, this argument is, follows this like rabbinic argument structure called from light to heavy, and Jesus uses this. It's used throughout the Bible. but like, what had happened was, at one point the Pharisees were like nitpicking Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath. How could you? And Jesus was like, "Listen, for the love of me if one of you had a sheep that fell into a hole on the Sabbath, wouldn't you break the rules that say you can't work so you could save the sheep from dying? And they were like, well, probably. And he's like, how much more should I heal a person, an actual human? How much more valuable is a human than a sheep in a hole? And this is the same structure, right? Jonah did not create the plant. There was only one plant, and he had one day to become attached to the plant, and he's ready to die over the plant. How much more... Should God care because God is the creator of the Ninevites and there's 120,000 of them, not just one, and God has cared about them and been attached to them from the beginning, how much more should God care about these people than Jonah cares about this plant? So God's created everything. This means God gets the final say, right? But it doesn't just mean that God gets the final say between who gets mercy and who gets justice. He means that God cares which is the point that we, we're always like, yeah, these people deserve what they get. But when it comes to us, <laughs> we're like, no, no, I would very much like mercy. I don't want to be called out for the things that I've done wrong. I don't want to be called out or harmed in any way for the harm that I've caused other people, right? And the Bible is very ambiguous. And this is how the book ends with God saying, shouldn't I care? What do you think? Shouldn't I care about the city of Nineveh? And the Bible just has all of these, like, questions, ambiguities. Side note. You y'all seen VeggieTales? <laughs> I reference VeggieTales a lot because it was, like, the only TV I was allowed to watch as a child. And for years of my life, they have a song, and I don't even remember what the song is, but they pronounce ambiguities, ambiguities in the song. They're like, let there be no ambiguities, And so I just pronounced it that way forever until one day my husband was like, no. Not a single person, I have been in church my whole life, and in the world, not one person was like, that's not how you say that word. Until I was like 27. So I don't trust any of you to tell me I have something stuck in my teeth. The Bible has ambiguities, and these are not problems to be solved. We always think of them as problems. we have to forensically like analyze the issue and come to an agreement. My favorite parts of the Bible are the ones like this that echo Jacob's wrestling with God when he wrestles in the Old Testament. I am always suspicious of people who are offering spiritual advice who don't like walk with a spiritual limp because it is wrestling with God that turns knowledge into wisdom. Wrestling with God is painful. It might leave you with a limp that never goes away, like Jacob. I love the parts of the Bible where people argue with God and God doesn't just tolerate it, but blesses it. Because in so many of our Christian traditions, the point of Christian life is to obey the clear teachings of the Bible. Without question, full stop. And you know, whatever your church said was the clear thing. That's obviously the right interpretation for thousands of years. To question your community's interpretation of the Bible was to question the Bible itself, and to question the Bible itself was to question God, which is the worst thing you could do. But guess what? Not questioning God and the Bible is in fact not biblical. Anyone who says, I just have to believe the same clear meaning of scripture, and we, shouldn't have, we don't have any faith, we don't have any doubts, we just have faith. God said it, and I believe it, and that's that. That is actually not biblical. That is not what we find if you actually read the Bible. This theological culture that we come from has made, made God out to be like this sensitive, vindictive dictator who just demands absolute obedience without any kind of relationship. But that is not the God we find in the Bible, and it's certainly not the God we find in Jonah. Jonah's relationship with God is pretty intimate. Can you imagine telling someone you don't care about, like that you? disagree with them. Like, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. If Jonah didn't care, he would have been like, whatever. Instead, he was like, how dare you? God, how could you do this to me? I I knew you were like this. I knew you were nice. (laughs) How dare you be nice, right? And God is clearly God in the story, and it doesn't stop Jonah from showing up as he truly is, which is really mad. It doesn't stop him from showing up with his emotions and all of his things that he thinks about God, and God seems to respect this and invite it. God is not like, hey, no, you're not allowed to talk to me that way. God doesn't say that. And I think many interpreters have painted Jonah in this negative light, like he's just mean old guy stomping around, doesn't want to do anything he's told. But I actually think this is a story of friends. This is, this is like a realistic relationship where people have a disagreement and they argue about it. And then, like a real relationship with God is not one-sided. It does not require us to hide our feelings or our doubts. It provides space for all of us to show up. And that's a good thing because as humans, we have a lot of feelings and doubts. And if you don't, if you're one of those people who's like, I don't have feelings, you're lying. And you know why I know that? Because every time a very logical, non-feeling person is approached with feelings, they get very angry. <laughs> Which is, in fact, a feeling. So they are ang- they're having feelings about not having feelings. Like, that's a tangent. Let's continue. Where was I? <laughs> okay. After 33 years, I've been in faith for 33 years, I was like practically born in church. Not literally, because ew, but like pretty much I was born in church, okay? I have yet to figure out how to marry these two things, justice and mercy. I have learned from my marginalized friends and from instances in my own life that leaning too far towards mercy and grace can just be an exercise of privilege. Like it's only when our rights or abilities to feel safe in our community is not threatened, that the idea of making sure we listen to both sides is a clear value. However, on the other hand, overemphasizing justice and righting wrongs and punishing people is often a symptom of arrogance and hypocrisy because our hands are not clean either. Right? Should God not also be concerned with the Ninevites? Should God not also be concerned with our current enemies, whether they're political, or spiritual or personal? Should we not also show them mercy and grace? And I have to be really grateful that God and Jonah's debate ends with this question (laughs) that has no simple answer, because when do we show mercy and when do we show justice? When is love expressed through grace for the wrongdoer? And when is it expressed through fighting for justice? When is forgiveness have to be earned? And when is it freely given? What kind of forgiveness could there be that honors both the violent and the people the violent have harmed? These are questions that uh, were not answered in Jonah and still have not been answered. (laughs) Welcome to a long tradition of theologians, ethicists, and normal people arguing about this and every person being like, no, I'm right. Even to death, (laughs) I am right about this, God. I mean... In my 20s, I'm sure I would have given you like wonderfully specific theological answers that looked fabulous on paper to this question, and I probably would have gotten an A on it. And guess what? The professor would have been like, I, I see your argument, but you have no life experience. <laughs> and I have some life experience now, like I have hurt people, I've experienced hurt um, at the hands of Jesus followers, nonetheless. I'm a spouse, I'm a parent, and my answer to most things now is not, well, this is what you should do, it's, it depends. Because it does, doesn't it? And we don't like that. We want very clear, we just want to know what to do. In every situation, we want blanket answers. There are days when I answer God's question, is it right for you to be angry? With like a, yes. <laughs> Heck yes. Even to death. I don't know. I wouldn't go that far because I like my life. <laughs> I don't want to die over something I might be wrong about. But like, I, there are days where I'm like, yes, how could you? Right? And then there are days that God says, is it right for you to be angry? And my answer is No. <laughs> It's like one of those quiet, like, okay, no, it's not. This tension between grace and justice is called a polarity. It's where two opposing things pull at each other to create balance. It's not moderate, middle-of-the-road thinking, right? It is where two things that exist in opposition because of their opposition bring wisdom, not in spite of it. And they teach us about what God is like. And this echoes in the New Testament towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God causes sun to rise on the evil and the good and sins rain on the just and the unjust. And if you love those who love you, what reward do you get for that? Even the tax collectors do that. That's like, who cares about tax collectors? I mean, I, mean, I know we have like no love for the IRS in here, but... the tax collectors in our day are not like, we don't hate them, I hope. But in Jesus' day, this was like a big deal. So he was like, even the worst people you can think of, like those who like them, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? And every time I read Jonah, I think about the Sermon on the Mount because it weaves together this theme of God as creator and God as redeemer, and it brings together questions of justice and mercy, and it is explicitly about loving people who we don't agree with, or maybe who don't agree with us. And the most frustrating thing about this passage, probably for Jonah, too, is there is no divine rubric. There's no, God is not predictable in when mercy is shown and when justice is shown. We cannot learn God's algorithm and predict with what is going to come, much less manipulate it to get what we want. It turns out that that old theology we find in Deuteronomy and we still find it in the world today, like if you do good, good things will happen to you. And if you do bad, bad things will happen to you. It's just not true. That's a binary theology that has no place in a real messy world. God causes sunshine, to fall on the, and rain, sunshine and rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And in the same way, Jesus concludes our love is to fall on the just and the unjust. That's a really difficult teaching. It's not new. It's not something to just subscribe to. Be like, yes, love God, love people. Hashtag. Make a t-shirt out of it. Loving the just as well as the unjust requires a lifelong commitment to God and the humility to be able to say, perhaps it is harder to love them than I first imagined. Jonah does not give us a formula for balancing mercy and justice. In our own lives, not as a people of faith, not as a society, but it does raise really important questions about our relationship to God and our relationship with our enemies and what it means for God to love. And I think the Bible models for us this is one of the most valuable things about Jonah. Our need to wrestle with these questions and come to our own conclusions in our own time and place. It doesn't say, and God said, here's the answer. It said, and God asked a question and then invited us into the conversation. There's a Danish philosopher who said, Christianity wasn't meant to be understood, but existed in. And some of us are like, yeah, that sounds right. And some of us are like, nope. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) I would like to pinpoint, I have many texts, I have books, (laughs) I have lists of things that I would like to be understood, right? No, it is the process of life, of hashing these questions out in a community of people who don't all agree that we begin to actually exist in our faith instead of passively just watching it from the outside. Do we really understand, Grace? Y'all can come back up here. Because Jonah really wanted the Ninevites to get it. And if we were Jonah, we would probably want the Ninevites to get it too. Like, they deserved it. And Jonah, if we call back to a couple of weeks ago, Jonah had this experience of sinking. He sank and sank and sank through the water, and he sank into the underworld, right? Because he didn't want to go preach this, because he knew God was much more generous and much more compassionate and much nicer than he wanted him to be. And I think a lot of us have had that same experience where we know what the path forward is, but we don't want to take it. We don't want to have to forgive people. We don't want to have to forgive ourselves. We don't want to have to let go of the idea that we're bad or that other people are bad or that there can be forgiveness to everyone. We want to hold tightly to the idea that people need to be punished or maybe that we need to be punished. And we've had this experience of sinking, especially if you've come from conservative evangelicalism. It can feel like you're drowning in the process of moving from what your beliefs about God were to what they are now. So where are you? Are you still sinking? Try not to fight it so much. The sinking, we call it deconstruction. But like people just fight that so hard. Just let let it happen. Don't fight it. Sink and sink and sink and embrace not knowing. Sink until you feel so far away from where you once were that getting back seems impossible. And then pay attention because God will send a fish to bring you home. Are you on the journey up? Have you sank? And then God is bringing you back on this journey of three days and three nights. And it feels endless and you know you're going up and you know something is changing, but you don't know what, because everything is still dark. Pay attention. This journey is an opportunity to pause and reflect and listen and perhaps worship. Have you just been spit out (laughs) on dry land? Are you taking some shaky wobbly steps? trying to find your footing in a new land of faith where everything feels uncertain and there's no clear answers? Pay attention. The path may be new and it may be hard, but it is the path to freedom. It's the chance for you to choose your faith instead of staying stuck. Or are you like Jonah and you're trapped in rage look around the world and you feel like there should be much less grace and much more punishment. Are you mad at God for sending rain on the just and the unjust? This feeling is not wrong and it is not dangerous. You can argue, you can wrestle, you can complain to God just as you would an intimate friend and then pay attention. Hear the word of the Lord saying, is it right? For you to be angry? Should I not care for the lost children that have hurt you, just as I care for you? I think Jonah is a lesson to us all to pay attention, because if we are paying attention, we will understand, maybe for the first time,